This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. This data existed, the resource was there. And based upon our knowledge from wine yeast, we knew what kind of mutations in IRC7 to go looking for. So we hooked up this idea of taking that data, interrogating it, and uh, White Labs doing some work at their end to to see if they could detect um, differences in activity between some of their strains. If you were to ask me what a high style producer was in, in our yeast library, there are some surprises to me um, from this data. This week on the show, we chat with two authors of a 2020 World Brewing Congress poster about a collaborative project to predict and classify potential polyfunctional thiol release across the White Labs yeast library. Hi, my name is Karen Fortman, and I'm the head of R&D here at White Labs uh, Yeast Manufacturer in San Diego. Hi, my name's Chris Curtin. I'm an assistant professor at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Okay, we're talking about thiols again on the show today. By now, listeners have heard about 3MH precursor in malt and the brewer's yeast that was engineered to get that 3MH into beer on episode 188. Shortly before that, we heard about tracking for MMP during hop harvest picking windows, as well as throughout fermentation on episode 181. And just a few months ago, Maddie Cavana and Leandro Miners told us about their exogenous enzyme trials down in Argentina. I don't think we need a thorough review of what's going on here, but Give us a brief summary of how these compounds are present in raw materials and what it takes to get them into beer. Yeah, so thiols are very clearly the the shiny new thing at the moment um, with regard to beer flavor. I mean, they're not a new thing. They've always been in beer. We've just become a lot more aware of them, mostly as a component of what we know of as hop flavor. Um, These thiols, when they're present in their free form, their aromatic form, 
they impart those guava, tropical, passion fruit kind of aromas. Uh, but in fact, the predominant form that they're in, and this is true of, of hops and also malt, is a bound form, which um, your listeners have heard about in terms of uh, that these compounds are bound to cysteine or glutathione. And when they're bound like that, they can't be smelled. You know, when you dry hop beer, you do end up with free thyle. And that can, these free thiols can get there in, in two ways. One, in the hop itself, there's going to be some amount of the bound thiols released by enzymes that are present in the hop itself. The other way that these compounds can become present in their free aromatic form is through the activity of enzymes found in yeast or even added exogenously. Uh, but in most beers, the way that these thiols get into the beer is through the combination of um, release that happens in the hop itself before it's used and also some degree of activity by the yeast. And what determines whether or not any given yeast strain ha- has these enzymes? And that's where we get to the, you know, the topic of this poster and the research that, um, that Karen and I have been uh, collaborating on is that I worked on this previously in wine yeast back in Australia. And what we found in wine yeast is that very few strains actually have this capability at all. And the determinant is this gene known as IRC7. Um, Gene names can be rather cryptic, and this one doesn't really have anything to do with its actual activity. So this gene called IRC7 encodes an enzyme called carbon sulfur beta lyase. That's the the enzyme that releases the free aroma compound from the cysteine conjugate. And what determines whether a yeast strain has um, a high potential to do this really comes down to the form of IRC7 that's present in the yeast genome. So there are some versions of the gene that have very little activity and some that have very high activity. And we know this, like you said, from the wine industry. Were you involved in that same study out of Australia that we discussed with Charles Denby? Yeah, so this has gone back away, back to 2011. Um, A master's student who was working with me did some work on a different gene called SDR3, which can perform the same activity. It's just not as powerful as IRC7. IRC7 in yeast is the main enzyme that has this activity. All right. So what exactly did you set out to do here? Yeah, so this was a conversation I think Karen and I had. Karen, this would be going back to the HOP symposium at OSU, I think. I think so. So 2017? Yeah. A lot of good things came out of that conference. Yeah, it was an incubator for all sorts of ideas. And um, at that conference, it was mentioned that the precursors were also found in malt. And that was a bit of an eye-opener because then that opens up this idea that you could generate some hop aroma without hops. Obviously, not to the same degree or ever going to replace hops. But if you can get a little bit more out of your your malt, then why not? And um, Karen and I talked about the fact that White Labs collaborated with Kevin Verstreppen. That's gone back a few more years, Karen. Do you remember when that was? Uh, the paper came out in 2016, but yeah, the collaboration started, I believe, in 2012. It was prior to me coming to White Labs. And so that was all about generating genomic sequence data on a, a large number of beer strains, including a large number from White Labs. 
So this data existed, the resource was there, and based upon our knowledge from wine yeast, we knew what kind of mutations in IRC7 to go looking for to try and predict whether a strain, a, a beer strain might have high or low activity. So we hooked up this idea of taking that data, interrogating it, and uh, White Labs doing some work at their end to, to see if they could detect um, differences in activity between some of their strains. All right, so you've got access to the data and the library of yeast strains. Let's hear about the actual experiment itself, as well as the control strains that you decided to use. So then in terms of our experimental approach, what we did was take strains that from wine research we already knew were low. There's a, a laboratory strain that we use as a negative control that's known as S288C. And then a strain called Maxithyl, which is a, a wine strain that was developed at a, a laboratory in, at the University of Auckland. And from wine use strains, we know that that's a very high activity strain. So, so it's uh, not just a clever name. No, it's not just a clever name. It, if we talk specifically about this gene, IRC7, they, through breeding, this was through like natural breeding of two different yeast strains. One was uh, a commonly used wine yeast, and the other was a strain that came from coconut milk, I think, from Hawaii or, or another Pacific island, that had an unusual extra copy of this IRC7 gene. So the researchers in Auckland bred the two together and out popped this you know, wonderful strain that they then named Maxithyl. And so they were our like, control points. And, the and that's, approach, a, that's a wine, wine yeast strain, right? Yeah, that's a wine yeast yeah. strain. Yeah. Don't know if it makes good beer. Can't say I know anybody who's tried. You never know. And uh, so we have those control strains. And then um, Karen and her team at White Labs performed a biochemical assay that uses a, a model substrate to measure the activity, uh, this particular activity. And that's, um, we've got that in a figure with some box plots where you can see that we've grouped strains according to low to very high activity um, based upon these measurements. Yeah, and something that was interesting out, that came out of that was that some of these strains actually perform much higher than maxi even. There were four different steps in your study. Give us a high-level tour of the various components of this project. All right, so the, the first step is really looking at this, uh, this library of sequence strains and cataloging the mutations that we find in IRC7. So we presented that as a kind of like a, a word map, I guess, might be presented where the most frequently occurring are in the largest letters. So there were some mutations that were very common. And when I say mutations, I mean compared to a reference sequence. So it's all, always relative. And what we found were there were some mutations that we'd previously observed in wine yeast that were quite common. And then there were other mutations that were, were novel that we didn't see in wine yeast. So we had that as a catalogue, then we picked strains to perform a biochemical assay on based upon trying to represent those different mutations. And that's where Karen and her team came in. They did biochemical assays. And then the, the next step is to try and work out how those two data sets relate together. The mutations that we observed 
and the activity that we observed for the, for the different strains because each strain had a different set of those mutations. So then we used, a, it's a very fancy sounding term, machine learning. What it really means is that's a statistical approach that uh, does a lot of replicates, let's say. And um, using that approach, we can gain a confident measure of how important a particular mutation is. So this is a thing that we call, or well, the approach is called random forest analysis. So by the end of the study, or by the end of this preliminary work, what we have is a, a prediction of which mutations might be most responsible for the, uh, the variation that we observed in activity for this set of strains. You know, your poster mentions the sequencing data included 93 brewing strains. How did you choose which strains to include in this study? And did you intentionally include any beer strains known to produce tropical flavors? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually didn't consider anything more than the mutation data itself. So the, the choice and, and what we've included in the poster is where we're up to. We're, we're not really finished with this study yet. Um, it was based purely upon trying to make sure we had each of the types of mutations that we observed represented. The complicating factor here is that they don't occur by themselves. So each strain has a different pattern of these mutations. In an ideal world, you'd take each mutation separately and try and work out what they do. Um, but when you're working with natural, naturally existing strains and, um, and even more so brewing yeasts that have very complex genetic um, structures, then this is kind of where we're at. So you, you take the whole set, try and make sure you span all the variation, and then see what they do. Yeah, and kind of to add on to that, something that I found interesting is because this data uh, wasn't specifically looking for or looking at strains that we already knew uh, were commonly used in juicy IPAs or whatnot. Um, the the data was kind of surprising. Some of the strains I wouldn't have necessarily picked as high producers um, or low producers. And so I think there is a, a lot to be uncovered. And um, I was, again, just kind of surprised of, the, of what came out of it. Yeah. All right. Let's hear about that analysis of enzyme activity. What was interesting there? So we took the strains that uh, Chris had kind of categorized as either high or low producers based off of the genomic data. And this was all just theoretical um, highs or lows and uh, ran them through a, a biochemical assay in which we gave it a substrate and we were looking at um, the, the cleavage of that substrate. If, it, if the substrate was cleaved, then we knew it had uh, higher biochemical activity and and this um this biochemical assay in the work that we that i did previously on wine yeast we correlated has a very high correlation to thiol release during actual fermentation so it's not a direct measure of of thiol release it's indirect but highly correlated and so after we took those strains and ran them through the biochemical assay some of them um agreed with the predictions that Chris's lab had made, and some of them didn't agree with the, the predictions that 
Chris's lab had made. So that's uh, kind of speaking to what Chris was talking about, where the genetics of brewing yeast are very complex and it's not as simple as it might seem. Coming up. The free thaws are usually present in the parts per trillion range, you know, that kind of drop in an Olympic swimming pool kind of range. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. There's one last sponsor I should mention, and that's More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. And if you like this show, be sure to thank all of our sponsors because it wouldn't be possible without their generous support. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northern California meets virtually December 10th. District Carolinas has a free technical seminar December 17th. And finally, a conference you can put on your calendar that's likely to actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers Association of the Americas offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Keep current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers today. Use discount code BEER20 to save 20% on dues, now through December 31st, 2020. Master Brewers. United We Brew.
Now back to the show. Earlier, you mentioned a few surprises. Do you want to talk about any of those? Um, yeah, I guess I, we were just, we had anticipated that the Maxi File would be uh, our highest producer of, um, or I guess, highest converter in this biochemical assay. Um, and it was pretty surprising that there were a good five, six strains that were higher than maxi thiol and three that were um, significantly higher than the maxi thiol. And it, and it is um, reproducible in both a biological replicate type analysis as well as um, just a technical replicate. If you take the yeast strains from your study that outperform the maxithiol control, and we'd love to know which uh, strains those were, by the way, can you give us an idea of expected ranges of thiol concentration in beer with those strains? Not yet, but hopefully uh, soon. That is kind of on our docket of things to do, uh, looking at these in, in true fermentation. Um, and not just in, in lab kind of perfect wort with perfect substrate uh, type condition. Yeah, that's definitely on the to be continued list. The, the one thing I will say is that in the, the wine yeast work, you know, maxithyl was around a 20 time better converter than, um, than the, the porous performing strains. And then we can see that in our data, it seemed like at least one of the strains that we assayed, a beer strain, is you know, two to three times more potent than maxithyl. So it means that you know, there's a fairly, fairly big difference in potential to release. Um, and how that plays out is you know, where we're going next. Are these enzymes always, um, are they always inside the yeast cell or do they end up out in the beer matrix during fermentation and maturation? That's a good question. They, they're an intracellular enzyme, so they're made by the yeast to perform uh, a function inside the cell. Um, so they, they would end up outside if a, if a cell lyses and releases its contents into the, into the beer matrix, but otherwise they're an intracellular enzyme, which means that the precursors have to end up inside the cell. How do these enzymes hold up under fermentation conditions? Are they, uh, I mean, I, I assume it help, it, it's, uh, it's helpful that they're intracellular, but are they stable throughout fermentation um, or are brewers likely to end up in ranges of temperature, pH, or any other parameter that might quickly denature the carbon sulfur beta lyase activity? They're, they're stable inside the cell. Um, and they'll be stable throughout fermentation. The, the bigger effector in, in terms of fermentation and the activity of IRC7 is that um, it is at least in part suppressed by high nitrogen content. So during the early stages of fermentation, it's more likely to be suppressed and be switched on later in fermentation. That, that's interesting. Do you talk, talk, say something more about that if you can. This gene is quite interesting in, in the sense that it, it was originally horizontally transferred into an ancestor of sa all the Saccharomyces species. So it's been in, um, in the evolutionary history 
of Saccharomyces for, for millions of years. And it's regulated by nitrogen because it is involved in nitrogen metabolism in the sense that it, it, uh, it plays a role in balancing the amount of um, sulfur-containing amino acids like cysteine in particular. So it seems to perform an interesting role, but most of the time we find that yeast have, or Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast, have this enzyme inactivated through all of these different mutations. So it's a really weird case where we can see that it, it performs a role, that it's regulated by a, a relevant logical part of the yeast um, regulatory machinery, and yet for whatever reason, most yeast strains seem to want to switch it off completely. Some of the strains you studied here uh, were STA1 positive. Mm-hmm. Are diastatic yeasts more likely to have thiol-releasing enzymes? Well, uh, that is a good question. If I, again, draw parallels to you know, wine yeast um, are more likely to be uh, SDA1 positive. Most wine yeast are low activity. So I, that's really the only parallel I can draw. But I don't, I don't think they'll be directly related. But I guess that will play out once we get a, a broader catalogue of strains and understanding their activity. And look at their other attributes. I would say that while some of them are STA1 positive, all of our high producers are not STA1 positive. Um, so I don't necessarily think that that's a, there's a correlation there. All right. That's good news. Are these enzymes working on um, lots of different thiols or is there like just a specific group of them that are affected here? Yeah, so ISC7 does act on the precursors for both 3MH and 4MMP and probably others as well. It also acts directly on cysteine to release um, hydrogen sulfide. So they're not, they're not enzymes that only target one thiol. ISC7 has a stronger preference for the 4MMP precursor, um, where it's more likely to degrade the 4MMP precursor than some other forms of the enzyme but yeah it's more of a overall thiol impact than a a focused thiol impact well obviously thiols is a pretty big group of um of different flavors and aromas right and yeah there's some really cool tropical ones that we're talking about here and and people Mm -hmm. like to talk about but i mean what comes out of a skunk is a thiol right (laughs) um you know how, how how do we um, how do we make sure we don't amplify, you know, unpleasant flavors? That's a really good question. So the ideal way would be to have all of the precursors for those good and bad styles available and then test them directly. Um, that's difficult and, and probably not very cheap. Uh, the other way is to try and find, uh, like, for example, if you had a, a skunky kind of hop variety, it's likely to have precursors for whatever uh, imparting that aroma. And then we can evaluate whether there's an you know, additional release of those compounds by the yeast. Uh, the reality is, while we, you know, we see these compounds as you know, very important in our world, they don't necessarily get that much attention outside of 
you know, beer and hops and and wine, and therefore there isn't a you know, huge body of research out there, and we don't have a lot to go on sometimes. And the the compounds themselves are really difficult to detect because uh, you know the, the free thiols are usually present in the parts per trillion range, you know that kind of drop in an Olympic s- swimming pool kind of range. That from a technical point of view is very difficult. And then the the precursors themselves aren't always available as pure chemicals. So it's difficult to to really get at that question of how do we know whether um, we're going to see release of good thiols or bad thiols. Um, at the moment, all we can say is we can, uh, we can show that strains have varying capacity to release thiols. Fair enough. Karen, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I would always just say that when it comes to, I mean, brewers love to talk about aroma and flavor, uh, which they should. Um, and we know that yeast biochemistry dictates a lot of aroma and flavor. Um, so when it comes to the actual formation of these aroma and flavor compounds, you always just want you want a, a perfect amount of everything, right? Um, some people love isoam last table when it's at a very high concentration. Nobody wants to eat or drink a beer that's like a banana split. Um, you, some people like buttered popcorn, but they're not going to like buttered beer. Um, so I really think that it's it's a, a fine line that you're walking in, tor- in terms of flavor and aroma and the matrix that um, it is in will also dictate the the perceived flavor and aroma that are, that's um, formed. Probably worth noting that in, in this case here, we're focusing on yeast strains that are already out there being used by brewers. So they've kind of passed that first level of, uh, does this strain make my beer smell horrible? Um, you know, if we're if we were isolating yeast from nature and and looking at all of this, we'd, we'd have to definitely be a lot more cautious with, um, you know, just because we find a strain has a good level of thiol-producing capacity, um, it might make a horrible beer. In this case, we know that they're all strains that at some point have been used to make beer. For brewers who want just the absolute maximum amount of thiols, we already talked about what's possible through genetic modification on episode 188. Talk about how your approach compares to that. The, the engineering of strains to have high levels of activity, um, like the work that Charles Demby and, and Berkeley lab are doing, it does a couple of things. One, it shows the, the level of potential for, um, in this case, for thiol release to dramatically change the, the aroma and flavor of beer simply by changing your choice of yeast, right? So that, that's an incredibly powerful demonstration of, of what yeast can do. Um, so it's pushing forward that as an idea and also providing tools that, that brewers can use in creative ways. And I think what we're doing here, it's going to be you know, more nuanced. It's, we're unlikely to find a naturally occurring strain that has the level of activity that can be engineered in that way. But it will provide... Well, a for brewers who just aren't ready for adopting that technology or can't, um, or who are looking for a more nuanced beer in terms of the amount of 
of files that might be generated. So in the short term, at the very least, I think there's scope for, for this kind of research to more immediately put in the hands of brewers some, um, some tools to optimize beer flavor. That was Karen Fortman and Chris Curtin here on the Master of Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more about this project, check the show notes for a link to the World Brewing Congress poster. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the proceedings of the first International Brewer Symposium on Hop Flavor and Aroma, which is that pivotal conference that was mentioned earlier in this episode. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use the promo code BEER20 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues if you register before the end of the year. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Just